You're listening to episode 192 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and a Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. I'm looking forward to today's conversation with Andrew Arndt. He's a writer who I've gotten to know personally over the last few years, and he recently has a book out on the desert fathers and mothers. Uh, I mentioned in the conversation that if you're anything like me, even through Bible college and seminary, you spend a lot of time in the early church history, a lot of time in Reformation history, and unfortunately, there's these segments of church history that just don't get the attention that they probably deserve. I'm grateful that Andrew spent a lot of time in those forgotten places, the desert fathers and mothers and brings us some really helpful points about how their writings, how their lifestyle can help us navigate the challenges and the complexity of the time that we're living in, what he calls a wasteland. A really helpful book. He's a great writer. I think you'll enjoy it in the conversation. As always, thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Andrew Arndt. He's the lead pastor of New Life East, one of seven congregations in the New Life Church, uh, Colorado Springs area. He, prior to joining New Life's team, he served as a lead pastor of Bloom Church, a network of house churches in Denver. He also hosts the Essential Church podcast, a weekly conversation designed to strengthen the thinking of church and ministry leaders. He has a MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is currently working on a doctorate of ministry at Western Theological Seminary, which happens to be the way that I know him, in addition to having read his book. Uh, we can get into that. But he joins me today to talk about a new book he has out entitled Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Andrew, really an honor. Uh, glad to have you on the podcast. And thanks for the, the book. I'm excited to talk about it. Glad to be with you, Chase. And thanks for reading it, man. Yeah, well, I want to get into this idea. You opened the book really early on by talking about how this moment we're in is a kind of crossroads. You use the language of a spiritual wasteland. And I think getting that, your sort of view on this moment is what makes this book really important. I think I mentioned to you one time that it's it was interesting reading the book because it's a book about desert fathers and mothers, people not from our time, right? <laughs> it's not a current events-based book. Right. But yet, reading the desert fathers and mothers, you've really found uh, an important connection to the time we find ourselves in as well, too. So maybe you could uh, make that connection for people. Yeah, I mean, I, the instinct to say that the society that we're living in is a spiritual wasteland, uh, really that the first time that, that thought occurred to me was reading Henry Nouwen's book, The Way of the Heart. And that's really a book on desert spirituality. He wrote some years ago, actually, I think about 40 years ago now. And he took a great statement of one of the great early desert fathers, Abba Arsenius, to, uh, the Lord spoke to him to flee, be silent and pray always. And that was how he would recover his soul. So solitude, silence and prayer was how now and framed out how we recover our own souls in a spiritually desolate time. But the, the comment that he made that so captured my attention, and I've thought about a lot since then, is he said, you know, that our society is not a society that's radiant with the love of God. And I think as the scriptures describe it, I think as the great theologians and mystics down through the centuries have described it, what it means to be in a place of spiritual human vitality is love of God. I mean, that's what Jesus says, you know, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we're not living in a society where people love God, nor are we living in a society where people really know what it means to love each other well. And therefore, we are in a wasteland. And so I started reading these folks, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, about five and a half years ago and found some extravagant like points of connection with our moment. And because they felt the same thing. They were looking at Roman society and going, this is a disaster. And then they're looking at the church. And the church had so 
fallen in with Roman Roman society and had become comfortable with power in Roman society, that it was also losing its soul. So they fled really to recover um, the love of God and love of neighbor in the desert. And if we're living in a spiritual wasteland now, that means that we don't have to run away <laughs> to find the desert. The desert has actually come to us. We're in it right now. So the task for us, I think, is to try to understand what God might be saying to us in it and what it might look like for us to recover our humanness in it. And I think that these folks can kind of point the way for us. But that's what I mean by spiritual wasteland, that there's just not, <laughs> there's just not a lot of love in the atmosphere. Yeah, and I think it's a question. Most, our humanity, we have to recover that. Most people probably nod their head at the question because they get it already, right? So I think all yeah. of us sort of had that sense of where, where we are at the moment. When did you get yeah. interested in the Desert Fathers and Mothers? And uh, maybe as a sort of part of that question, why do you think they've been neglected for so many people? I mean, look, in my own ministerial experience, my own education, there's a lot of early church, and then you sort of jump to Reformation, right? And there's sort of this gap sometimes yeah. in church history. Uh, why do people, why are people just not as familiar with the Desert Fathers as a place of turning and how you came across it? Well, so I became really interested in them. It was, a, I say this in the book, but it was a personal crisis that threw me into it. I, we, you mentioned that we pastored in Denver for a number of years and that was a church that I loved with all my heart. I planted it with one of my good friends and, you know, I really thought I was going to die at that church. Like I've, I've told so many people, like my vision of the good life was like, you find a city that you like, you find a group of people that you can fall in love with and you do one work for a really long time. Like I just, to me, it was like, I could think of nothing better than like being 80 years old or 85 years old and preaching one Sunday and dying in the pulpit. And then they just haul me out and bury me in the backyard. And that's the end of the service, you know, but it just didn't work out that way. It was such a desolating experience for me to have to step away from something that had become a real source of identity for me. And it, it created an identity crisis, quite frankly. And I remember in the first six months or so after we'd moved here to the Springs, I was so lost and just couldn't find my way. And somebody recommended that I read the desert fathers and mothers. And I was like, well, I know about the desert fathers and mothers. They were like, no, you need to like read them. And I was like, well, I've kind of read them. They were like, no, read them. And I was like, why? And they go, because the thing that like you're struggling to accept this sort of like stripping of your identity, the stripping of your power, stripping of the sense of who you are, they actually sought it out and they found it to be a, a sure pathway to God. So these folks, like they renounced power and they renounced status and privilege. Like they kind of sought the throwing off of all of the um, trappings of identity that didn't properly come from God so that they could rebuild their lives around God. And honestly, man, I, so I started reading them in earnest. I read them devotionally. Like I would read the scriptures in the morning and I would pray for a while. And then I would pull uh, Benedict Award's alphabetical collection of the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers off the shelf. And I would thumb through some of the sayings and they just lit up the landscape for me. They helped me understand the way in which, frankly, God was calling me to die a deeper death in order to experience his life in a new way. So that was the thing that got me in it. It was the personal crisis. I, my suspicion is that especially like Catholics would say, well, we've never really neglected the desert fathers and mothers. They've always been there. I think Protestants have neglected them because there's a, well, they're really weird. First of all, <laughs> I mean, when you read their sayings and their stories, they, they strike you as being, they're people who are from somewhere else. You know, they're very, very strange. But that's part of the point of them is that their oddity, I think it actually shakes you loose of your um, taken for granted vision of the life of Jesus, maybe. 
And it pushes you into seeing the witness of the gospels in a fresh way. So there's an oddity about them that I think makes Protestants cautious. But probably the bigger thing I think is because of a nervousness about works righteousness. And these were people that really gave themselves over to the disciplined life uh, because they saw disciplines like solitude, silence, prayer, fasting, the renunciation of possessions, like all that stuff, submission. They saw that as a thing that cleansed the soul and made it ready for the advent of God. And I think that we just get a little nervous about that in Protestant Christianity. And I think part of the reason that there's been a resurgence of some of the you know material around the desert is because of the work of people like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard and others in the Protestant world in the last 40 to 50 years who have really helped us recover a sense that um, – that spiritual practices don't earn us favor with God. Like that, that just, you can't earn favor with God. You know, our favor with God comes in Jesus Christ and that's it. Signed, sealed and delivered. But what spiritual practice practices do is they predispose the soul. Like they open us up to be able uh, to uh, live in a more interactive and ongoing relationship with the living God. Um, I think is a good way to say that. And they also practice us unto holiness. Like we're, habituated into the life of faith more profoundly by them. So I think that's probably why they've been neglected, but uh, it seems like there's a fresh openness to them. You know, it's been, it's been fun listening to the feedback, you know, uh, people that have read this book, I think that they've resonated with it. And I really do think that it can help us. Yeah. It strikes me as the whole, you know, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man that we're discovering that some of these things are just practices we need, not because, not because they get us somewhere, but just because, without them, there's something missing. There's something empty that they actually add that aids in this following of Christ. Well, that's right. And and all relationships require a measure of, let's just call it religion and practice in order to cultivate what they are. You know, so my my wife and I got married 22 years ago, and we are not more married now than we were 22 years ago. <laughs> but here we are, like we, our relationship has blossomed and has grown. Why, why has that happened? It's happened because we've habituated ourselves to one another. And it's all the little things, you know, it's uh, the little, the rituals and the habits of, you know, a, a kiss in the morning and a greeting in the morning and making sure that I'm coming home at night and working through the disciplines of, you know, saying you're sorry when you've messed up and confronting the other person with the truth and all of that. So it's, I think we depend on practices in order to have relationships flourish. And sometimes I think in Protestant Christianity, we just overlook that. So again, like we're not more married than we were 20 years ago. We can never be more in relationship with God (laughs) than we are in Jesus Christ already. But the spiritual practices, I think, again, they, um, they like help actualize that relationship in us. They habituate us unto it. Yeah, I've always liked the image of acquired tastes, that there's some disciplines or some learning you can put in place that actually helps you enjoy something more. And I think that's also true of God, right? You can acquire an even greater taste through discipline. Yes, you definitely can. Uh, You you talk about in the book a sense of call to the to the wilderness. Uh, I think that's interesting because there's one way of looking at it. I'm sure maybe even in the day, some people thought that the desert father and mothers were running away, right? So they're they're yeah. they're trying to avoid the world around them. But yeah. you instead describe it as a kind of call. They're being called into this wilderness for a purpose. What is that call yeah. to the wilderness? Well, the call into the wilderness was really a call to resist the games of the empire and the games of institutional Christianity so that they could, again, everything, this is the thing that you have to understand about them is everything is about the love of God and the love of neighbor. And so it's all about like, if they're looking at a society that's not 
that's full of vanity and lies and anger and murder and rebellion and greed. They're looking at all that and they're going, ah, I'm not having anything to do with that. And I can't like one step towards it is complete capitulation. So I got to run away from it, but I'm running away from it to it's, it's a purification is what we're after. We're trying to get free of those entanglements so that we can be the blessing to the world that we need to be. And of course they wind up being that blessing for the world. You know, like people in a very short amount of time, as desert spirituality is growing up in the third, fourth and fifth centuries, you get people traveling from around like hundreds of miles away, sometimes around the Roman empire to come and sit at their feet and seek their wisdom. What are you doing? How does it work? How can I take this back into my world? And it, they took it back into their world. So, you know, one scholar says that these folks actually re-evangelized Christianity and they re-evangelized the Roman empire because of the way that they separated themselves. So the real question is like the question of what is like the flight to the wilderness. I think that it can be both actual that we <laughs> leave our jobs, we leave our station in life, but I think that it can be spiritual and symbolic as well. And I think the, I think the, uh, frankly, the easier thing to do is to quit our jobs and, uh, you know, just kind of bail out on everything that we're in the middle of and go live somewhere else. The harder thing to do is to be inside the life that you've been called to but to be different inside of it. And so the way that I interpret, you know, like when I read these folks, the way that I interpret them for myself is I go, okay, what are the lies, the illusions and the games that society and the church are throwing on me right now that are, and they're trying to convince me that somehow I'm going to discover true humanness in this. I'm going to find fulfillment in this. And what I'll do is I, I'll kind of sit inside these sayings and stories and let them be for me a source of discernment about where I need to separate myself from those games. Again, and the goal is to purify the heart, the love of God and neighbor. So I'm letting go of those things so that I can be inside my life in the way that God wants me to be inside my life. So I actually think that all of us are called to the wilderness, you know. Uh, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he goes out in the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. And that becomes a place that's a, that's the, it launches his ministry. You know, Luke says that he returns from the wilderness full of the spirit because of this renunciation and this sort of battle that he did. And then of course we learn in his ministry, he was constantly retreating to the wilderness, rising up very early in the morning and going to desolate places where he prayed. So it seemed like the wilderness was like this source of strength that enabled him to be who he was. I think the same is true of us. I think that we, what we've got to do is we've got to figure out how do we detach ourselves appropriately from the games that are happening and where do we need to go to rediscover our source of life in God so that we can live, not prophetically, frankly, in the world that we've been called to inhabit. So I think to me, that's what the call to the wilderness is all about. You point out in the book that this uh, pursuing this call will inevitably make you odd, which I love this part of the book too, right? Yeah. You've already sort of alluded to it. Even reading yeah. some of the writings of uh, the desert fathers and mothers, you catch the peculiarity of them uh yes what is it wh how are they odd and what does it mean to embrace this lifestyle in such a way that it makes us odd in the day we're living in as well why for the you is that a good thing i mean they were odd because they didn't they didn't play the game and we'll be odd because we don't really play the game you know or we play the game in a different way and so like you know just to think of like some contemporary examples like what this might look like like maybe you know, maybe one of the ways that we live out. And again, we're called like, again, this is like not some unusual things what we're called to. The scripture calls us a peculiar people. <laughs> so this is part of our identity as God's people. We're just different, you know? So what does it look like? Maybe what it looks like is, uh, you know, maybe you're doing really well in your career. Let's say you're 
you know, you're in your mid to mid to late thirties, you got little kids, your career is really starting to take hold. And there are some career opportunities in front of you that uh, are frankly quite amazing. You know, you could make a whole bunch more money, but it's going to require that you're working another 15 to 20 hours a week. And your kids are starting to reach that age where they really need mom or dad in the house just a little bit more. And so you've got the claims of your family and the claims of your career are competing. And you know what God's called you to. And you know what your family is supposed to look and feel like. And so you say no to a great career opportunity because you wanted to invest in your family more. You know, maybe it looks like that. So there are, you know, there are all kinds of examples like that. Maybe it looks like, you know, sticking up for people that, um, (laughs) sticking up for people that, you know, um, that it's costly for you to stick up for. You know, at the time of our recording here, I'm thinking about, you know, folks here in Colorado Springs. We just had a shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub just a couple weekends ago. And this is a city that's very traditionally, extremely religiously conservative. And so uh, it's costly in a city like this to uh, to stand up for the LGBTQ community and go, this should not have happened to you. And we're for you. We may not see like completely eye to eye. <laughs> on how we think about sexuality, but you need to know that you're safe with us and we've got your, we've got your back. Well, it would be more expedient maybe not to do that, but because we're called to the love of God and neighbor, a love that is a costly love, we're willing to bear that. We're willing to bear that cost and it makes us odd. So there's all kinds of things I think that we do that make us odd. I think that the task for us is to listen to the spirit around what's going on in our lives and then to say yes accordingly. And I do think that it'll, it'll put us in a strange position with the world that we live in, but that, that's, that's the call, you know, we're in the world, but not of the world. We've always said that, you know, I think that maybe that, that call to be in, but not of, I think maybe that needs to go a little bit deeper with, with us. Yeah. I do think it's worth, sort of an evaluative question for all of us to say if somebody looked at my life does it look basically just like everybody else's life around me right i go to a service on sunday mornings but besides that right. everything's basically besides the same that. as all my neighbors you know yes. how, how peculiar is your life then actually yes yes um you yeah, one, sure. one of the other topics you specifically draw out is the way that the desert father mothers handle power and you make the point early that i thought was really fascinating i've been thinking about it even since i finished reading the book that at the very moment when the church was gaining power in the world they actually chose to walk away from power. And I think there's something yeah. really interesting there uh, I'd love for you to maybe spend some time on. Yeah, power does funny things to a movement, you know. I think as soon as you're kind of, it's just funny. Like, I, I think in those first few centuries of the church, that um, that moment when we no longer have our backs against the wall, we're no longer fighting for our lives, I'm sure that was a moment that they all looked forward to. And yeah, one of the things that we learned, like I remember Stanley Hauerwas saying this a long time ago in something I read of his, that he said, whereas in the first few centuries of the church, uh, it took a lot of courage to be a Christian. Uh, once, you know, once Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, all of a sudden it took a lot of courage to be a, a pagan. Somehow the power just kind of like changed things. It just made it, we became comfortable and all of a sudden, now we're the folks that are like regulating the behavior of every everybody else. I, I just think that power does strange things to us. Now, the thing is that we, I, I think that power is one of those things like I, God, I mean, God, God is defined. He's the all powerful, the almighty God. 
So God doesn't necessarily abandon his power, but what God does with his power is he uses his power to lift. And so I, when I think about, again, when I think about like the call of the desert with respect to power, I do think that some of us, um, if we sense that power is poisoning our soul in some way, you know, like I'm just not using this right, I shouldn't be in the, this position, maybe it is time to just lay it down and rediscover the, the, the simplicity of life without power um, and, and the joy of being able to submit to other people. But I think maybe the harder thing to do is to be in a position of authority, but to use that authority in a way that builds up but doesn't tear down. And that is what our God does for us. He inhabits power in a way that, well, what's the supreme manifestation of the power of God? I mean, Jesus gets down, he fills a basin with water, and he washes the feet of the disciples. And he says, greater love has no man than this. He lay down his life for his friends. You're my friend if you do what I say. Like, and so following my example here. So what does it mean for us who hold power to use that power in a way that lifts and blesses others? You know, I think that's the, I think that's the question that the desert fathers and mothers throw to us. One of the great words, I think, uh, to add to it is this word renunciation, which comes up in the book. Uh, the Christian's willingness just to say no, uh, to, to walk away from things that perhaps we could have, perhaps there's nothing wrong with having, but a willingness to turn things down. What do you mean by yeah. the phrase, the great renunciation, and how that's become important to the book, but also you think this moment, this crossroad that we're at? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think the, you know, the great renunciation, renunciation is the thing that they talk about a lot and it's a source of spiritual freedom. You know, what's the thing that you feel like you can't live without is, is it money? Is it power? Uh, is it a relationship? Is it your reputation? What's the thing that you feel like you can't live without? And they, I think what they put in front of us is like the moment you feel like you've got something in your life that you can't live without, congratulations, you have an idol on your hand. <laughs> and, you know, the call of the, the scriptures is to find our source completely and exclusively in God, you know. And so if you're all tangled up with this other stuff that you feel like your life depends upon this relationship or this money, status, possessions, whatever it is. What they do is they go, hey, why don't you like come back to your baptism for a second? Because in your baptism, what happened is you literally like you stripped off the old self and all the accoutrements of the old self and you put on the new self who is, you know, it's and it is constantly being made new in Christ Jesus. The great renunciation really just is our baptism. Our baptism is that moment when we go, look, all of the things that defined me in the old life. They never really satisfied me and they couldn't do it for me. So I'm letting go of all of that and I'm finding my life exclusively hid with Christ and God. So what the Desert Fathers and Mothers are doing is they're calling us, I think they're calling us back to our baptism. And they're saying, hey, can we talk about the way in which you're kind of like sliding back into the old habits here? And let's think about like, what are the compulsions that you have in your life? What are the things that you feel like you just can't live without? Is it the promotion? Is it getting more money? Is it uh, the enhancement of your reputation on social media? Is it, you know, to speak to a, con a very contemporary concern? And I think that this, I think that this strikes a, um, a huge nerve kind of, of our moment, but like, is it a certain vision of America? <laughs> you know, like, uh, is it you having your social group or your political party get their way in our country? Is that a thing that you feel like you can't live without? Well, the moment you have something like that, again, you have an idol on your hand, 
and you're warping your humanness in some way. And you're probably going to hurt a lot of people around you. And I think a lot of the toxicity and political vitriol that we experience, that we're experiencing in our season is because there are a lot of folks that have their like existentially, like they depend upon uh, the elections going a certain way or their vision of America coming to pass. And I think what, again, what these folks would call us to is like, hey, why don't you just go ahead and let that go for a second? It doesn't mean that's not an important thing. It's that it's not an ultimate thing anymore. So renounce that vision, renounce that agenda, renounce that outcome that you feel like your life depends on and discover somehow in that, again, that you're liberated more for the love of God and neighbor. You see the issues better and you see the world better. You see with clearer eyes because you're not so existentially bound up with what happens, you know? Again, it's like Paul, like Paul says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. That's like what it is. It's like through <laughs> through our lives, somehow by the spirit, we've died to these things so that we can be in our lives in an appropriate way. I think that's what they're calling us to. Yeah. What, one of the things that surprised me about the book was um, the, the major section on community. It's easy when yeah. you think of this topic to think, oh, okay, I'm going to do this renunciation. I'm going to go be alone. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, yeah. say no to everything. I'm going to withdraw into wilderness. But yeah. you actually make community an intentional part of what this looks like. And I love the, the Bonhoeffer reference from Life Together where he says, no man that can't be alone should be yeah. in community, but no man who can't be in community should be alone. Maybe you could unpack yeah. how community plays out in this, what we might imagine as retreat into the wilderness, the renunciation, yeah. but yet still relationships are at the core. Well, they are at the core. I, that was the thing that was actually, Chase, that was most surprising to me about reading the Desert Fathers and Mothers was just how communal they were. We have the impression of them that they're sort of misanthropic, you know, like they hated people and they were trying to seek a religious justification for it. So they ran away, but that's not actually, that's not actually true. I mean, some of them were, some of them would have been absolutely terrible company, but most of them, I mean, they were generally social creatures and they started realizing pretty quickly too, that the spiritual life can't be lived in isolation. Um, that it tends towards a kind of self-infatuation, which tends toward madness and unhealth. Like we're designed to live in community, but we have to be in community in the right way. And that's the thing that Bonhoeffer talks about in Life Together is he has this great quote where he says, uh, let the one who cannot be alone beware of being in community. And also let the one who's not really in community beware of being alone. Well, why, what's he saying there? He's saying that there's a dynamic tension between aloneness and togetherness, which makes them healthy. And I think we're, again, we're like, we're living in a moment when we just don't know how to do this. We're either thoroughly enmeshed with people. And so we're determined constantly by the ebb and flow of the social group around us or whatever's happening in the world of social media, or again, the political party that we're a part of. We don't know, like we've, we lose ourselves in it. Um, or, we're so afraid of being taken advantage of or getting carried away that we become excessively isolated. I just saw an article recently, um, all those people now that like experience anxiety when their phone rings. <laughs> I mean, that's like an example of it, you know, like we don't know how to be together and we don't really know how to be alone. So what are the desert fathers and mothers calling us to be? They're calling us to put things back in proportion in our lives. They're telling us that like, good for you to be in community and God calls you into community. And in fact, the way that he saves us is in community, but you can't be in community unless you also have a foothold in the life of God. 
Like you have to have like your own little wilderness. And by that, I mean like those places that you go to, to disconnect and disengage and do an examine of the heart where you regain your footing as a beloved child of God. And really for most people, that's the daily practice of prayer. Or if they have a, have a habit of like solitude and silence retreats here and there, that's the kind of thing that will help you. But they're trying to push us into those spaces going, hey, make sure that you have those. And the reason that you have them, again, is so that you can be in community in the right way. So again, I think in our moment, I think that we're losing this. I think that we don't know how to be together and we don't know how to be alone. I think that they can show us how to do that. It's about, again, it's about proportionality. And the whole purpose of our being alone is so that our hearts are purified so that we can be in community in the right way. It would be really easy for this book, I think, to tip into a kind of isolationism or a kind of uh, running away from the world to stay away from the world or a sort of washing our hands of all things of the world. But the book actually ends on a really optimistic note. Uh, you pointed this yeah. out earlier in the way that the Desert Fathers and Mothers ended up sort of impacting culture over time. You actually yeah. believe that this sort of intentional way of living can actually begin to impact our culture, that we can actually change culture by this way of living, where I think some of us might imagine, you know, we've got to roll our sleeves up and be in the middle of every right. argument. <laughs> we've got to be, right. like, we're writers, right? I got to be writing a, a blog post right. on, and setting every topic straight when I come across to air. But you actually think there's this rhythm of spiritual wilderness lifestyle that actually yeah. has a greater impact, a greater influence. You're hopeful in the end on how we can renew culture. I am because I think, and I, I say this at the, you know, the final chapter of the book is on divine generosity. And I think that's the full flowering of the spiritual life of the desert fathers and mothers. I also think that to put it one way, it's the full flowering that that is the case because that's the full flowering of the life of God. And we know this because scripture says it, you know, that God so loved the world that he gave. And so God's uh, love is expressed in the generosity, uh, which looks like Jesus uh, giving his life for himself or giving his life for us on the cross. So I am really hopeful that this way of life uh, can change our witness in culture. Um, when I think about, again, going back to the great renunciation, the whole, <laughs> the whole point of what these folks are trying to lead us into is they're trying to help us let go of the things of the world so that we can be genuinely for the world in front of us. I think that what we're called to do is we're called to take up the towel and wash the feet of the world. And that has a way of winning the world. There are all these stories that are scattered throughout the desert fathers and mothers of like, you'll see this, like this is kind of a recurrent thing that folks will, you know, come to the cell of a desert father or mother and they'll be plundering it in some way, like evil people, you know, and uh, the desert father or mother will go in there and they'll either wash their feet or show them hospitality or do something for them that winds up like breaking the evil inside the spirit of these folks. And they'll come to a place of repentance. And I think that that's to me, I think that that's a metaphor for our time. I think it's a metaphor for the spiritual life that in that place where you feel like, man, like we're being plundered and pierced and. Uh, the world is taking things away from us. You hear that rhetoric, you know, like uh, we're losing our freedoms and all that stuff. Well, maybe the call is not to take up the sword. Maybe the call is to take up the towel. And I wonder what would happen if instead of seeing others as enemies that we need to protect ourselves from, we saw them as, well, beloved ones for whom Christ died. And we start washing their feet and we stop being threatened by people and we start listening to their concerns and empathizing with them. And we go out of our way to serve them. What would that do to our witness? You know, and I, I think more of us need to start thinking in that direction. So I do think that there's hope for the church, hope for the renewal 
of the church and hope for our witness. But I don't think it's in trying to, and I really I end the book on this note, but I don't think it's in trying to protect ourselves from the world. And I don't think it's trying to take back the culture from the world. I think it's about carrying our cross into the heart of the world like Jesus did and giving ourselves up for the life of others and seeing what God does with that. Well, I really, really enjoyed the book. And uh, one of the highest compliments I think I can always give a book is when I walk away with a whole bunch of other reading I want to go explore from it. And this book was certainly <laughs> one of those. It made me uh, reevaluate the time I've spent with Desert Fathers and Mothers. Clearly needs to be more. The book, again, is Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Uh, Andrew, before we go, is there is there a favorite story, a favorite saying uh, for people who, first of all, go read your book. It's a good introduction. And then as you begin to jump into maybe some of the Desert Father writings, um, maybe one of your favorite stories you've encountered. Yeah, I, my favorite one, and I wanted to include it in the book, and I just didn't have space for it. But uh, one of the things that's interesting to me, like I, we hadn't had a chance to talk about it, but my background is Pentecostal and charismatic. So I believe in signs and wonders and miracles and all that. And so I'm always like, I think part of what's been fun the last bunch of years, you know, learning about church history has been seeing how much my experience uh, as a charismatic has precedent in the history of the church. The miraculous has kind of always been there. And so one of my, um, one of my favorite stories from the desert is a story of a miracle. But what's interesting is the relationship that these folks, again, it's like the renunciation of reputation and things like that. Um, the, it's the repu- it's the relationship that they have to the miraculous. And so one of my favorite stories, it was a desert father by the name of Longinus and he was known to have gifts of healing. And there was a woman in a neighboring town who uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer, which, you know, fourth century, whatever, that's pretty much a death sentence. And she's freaked out about what to do. And so she starts asking her friends, you know, like, what, what should I do? And they go, well, there's this guy in the neighboring town. His name is Longinus. He's got gifts of healing. Go see him. Maybe he'll pray for you and maybe you'll get healed. So she makes the journey to the neighboring town and she runs into Longinus. He's like gathering stuff up by the seashore or something just outside of the town. And she doesn't know that it's him. And he goes, well, who are you looking for? And she goes, well, I'm looking for Longinus. And he goes, why are you looking for that guy? You know, he's a scoundrel, fool, an idiot. You don't want to talk to him. And she goes, well, I heard he's got gifts of healing. And he's like, no, you don't want anything to do with that. Now, what's the matter with you? And she explains the thing. And he goes, okay. He makes the sign of the cross over the afflicted area. And he sends her back to the town. And on her way back, she gets healed. (laughs) And when she gets to the, when she gets to the town, the townspeople ask her, you know, like what, you know, what happened? And she tells the story and they go, that was him. Like that was Avalonginus. Like, and you got healed by him. And I love that because, you know, as a charismatic, again, one of the things I saw, we saw lots of signs and wonders and miracles, but I always saw people like vanity crept in and people would build up ministries around it. They would become a big deal through it. And this, again, these people like show us this different way. Here was a guy who was like, actively crucifying his reputation. Abelongenus, you don't want to talk to that fool, <laughs> you know? And the power of God works through him because of it. And I just wonder if that isn't a lesson for us, that to the extent that we abandon our reputation, that we're not about ourselves, that we're about God and the power of God, and we're about the good of other people, maybe actually just to that extent, the power of God will flow through us. So that I love that story, and I think that I think it's a lesson for our time. Yeah, I love that one too, one I'm definitely going to think about. And also, the sign of a good writer, a story that good got edited out of the book, didn't make it in the book, just makes you that much, <laughs> that much more confident about what is in the book. Uh, Andrew, right. thank you so much for a great conversation. What If somebody wants to pick up a copy of the book, if they want to follow you, just learn more about the Desert Fathers, any recommendations? 
Yeah, I mean, you can grab Streams in the Wasteland on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And then a couple of resources, other resources for learning about them that are really great. Henry Nowen's The Way of the Heart is tremendous. Um, an ancient resource, uh, John Cashin's uh, conferences. Uh, John Cashin was a guy that went to the desert and had conversations with the desert fathers and mothers back in like the fourth century and compiled his conversations. And that became like a key text of desert wisdom. And it's still really relevant and accessible. It's really good. And then uh, Rowan Williams has a beautiful book called where God happens. That is a short study of the desert of desert spirituality. That is so good. And his basic premise is that God happens inside of relationships. And that's what the desert uh, folk are trying to do. So those three are my top favorite resources. I highly recommend going to get them. And then if anybody wants to follow me on social media, Twitter and Instagram is at the Andrew Arndt and Facebook is just Andrew Arndt. Yeah, perfect. Well, I'll make sure I'll, uh, of course, pick up streams in the wastelands. I'll have a link to that in the show notes and I'll try to, in the text, throw links to those other resources as well. And Andrew, I'm looking forward to us being able to be uh, back together again in person for school. But man, what a privilege to have yeah, you on man, the podcast. Too. Thanks for bringing uh, the book into the world and sharing it with the audience. Thanks. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Pastor Writer Podcast. I've got links for all of the books and resources mentioned in today's episode by going to the show notes at pastorwriter.com. You can uh, pick up the book that Andrew's written, Streams in the Wasteland, as well as all the others that he mentions in the episode. I also wanted to encourage you, the holidays are approaching. If you have not picked up a gift for maybe the men in your life, whether it's a a husband or a father, sons, grandsons, uh, maybe you'd consider picking up the five masculine instincts. I've been joking that it fits perfectly in a stocking, so it makes for a great gift and hopefully is a gift that uh, helps the men in your life continue to grow in their walk with Christ. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.